This is Scott. Hey, Scott, it's Tony. How's it going? Hey, Tony. It's going okay. I'm driving through a blizzard right now. Oh, my God. Where at? I'm, I was uh, guest lecturing at Yale, so I'm, I'm heading up from uh, New Haven to our farm in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Be we're, careful. We live, <laughs> we live on both coasts, so this is, uh, this is scary. Crazy. Yeah, and it's both hands on the wheel. Okay, yeah, ten and two, please. I don't, <laughs> I don't, we don't want to lose you. How are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing well. I was, uh, we've never taken a call before. You're our first one. And, oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, I'm and, glad uh, to be the first call. There was I just, hope the quality is okay. It's perfect. Everything's great. There was a uh, one button that wasn't pressed on here earlier, so we got it all fixed out. We're working now. Gotcha. Very cool. You're you're in Arizona? Yeah. Nice. Okay. Oh yeah, we're here. Weather's probably much nicer there. Um, mm, depends. <laughs> depends on how you look at it. I'd much rather have a blizzard right now, but I mean, I've lived here my entire life, so it's been nothing yeah, but. Got it. Grass is always greener. Yeah, I don't know what snow's like. I've never had a white Christmas. It's just been heat, and we yeah. get we get about two weeks out of the year where it's nice and cold, but then it's right like right now it's already back up to eighty degrees every day. Amazing. I miss it. I'm gonna be in LA in a couple of weeks, so I'm, I get the best of all worlds. Yeah, at least we were actually gonna go. Uh, it's funny. We, me and my wife, we haven't taken a vacation in almost a decade because of uh you know kids and this weekend it was like all right we're gonna finally go on a vacation we're gonna go to la we're gonna go to san diego this weekend and it's supposed to rain and have like 50 mile per hour winds and go down to 50 degrees so yeah we uh the one day we were gonna be out of here we had to cancel it oh man i'm sorry to hear that i just had my first uh my first kid on January 8th and my wife wanted to, wanted to hunker in, in the snow. I, I can't believe we're not, we're not doing this in the nice weather, but she sort of thought it'd be much more romantic and <laughs> nostalgic to do it in the snow. And I don't know why. That's awesome but, though, man. One kid is great. Oh, it's been <laughs> amazing. He's like, Stuffing his pants with Golden's mustard. I don't know where where he gets it from, but yeah, I keep uh, I keep finding yellow mustard in his in his diapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they uh, they they do weird things. One one is great. Uh, like we we had our first kid and he was amazing, and we we're like, oh my god, we should have another. And then we had another, and it's like this is the worst thing ever. What are we doing? <laughs> what were we thinking? But you can't, I don't think, you can't stop with one. Yeah. Well, we were going to go three, and then the second one happened. (laughs) Now I think we're done. Okay. Yeah. Noted. I think we're pulling the plug on it. I said, we see people at the store who have like five or six kids, and we're like, oh my God, you're crazy. How are you even? I I know. Yeah. Or twins. Like, I could maybe do three, but I definitely can't do two at the same time. This is all I can handle. No, for whatever reason, we were like, you know what, let's do one more. And then it came out to be twins. I I don't know what I would do. I'd probably just have oh, to, I'd, I'd be like, I love you guys, but I'm out. Yeah, I'm leaving. Right. And twins run so, Twins run in my family, too, so it's it's there. So tell me a little bit about the podcast. How long has it been going on? What do you, what's your take, your direction on it? What um, would you like to talk about we started the first week of January. Uh, we're about six or seven oh, episodes in. Thank you. Uh-huh. And uh, we try to talk about uh, like things like paranormal, uh, you know, myths and monsters, Bigfoot, UFO, aliens. And, uh, you know, we cover everything like horror movies, horror TV, things like that. But then we just end up going on wild tangents about uh-huh. whatever is on our mind at any given moment. So it's... It's there. It's getting there. We're getting it together. What about uh? What about you? What about you? Got any uh ghost or Bigfoot encounters to share? 
goes for Bigfoot and camp. You know, I honestly, I was the kid in summer camp who just was so skeptical of everything. I, I didn't, I, there was always the, the camp counselors would go, we'd go camping and it was maybe I, because I had an older brother who went through this and demystified it all for me. He's like, all right, at some point they're going to tell a ghost story, but at some point later, they're going to get everybody out of the tents and line them up and say that there's a killer on the loose and just don't go for it. Like don't buy it. Mm. And so I was, uh, I was always the skeptic and because I think I deconstructed, um, films early on, really wanted to take them apart and know how they worked as a result of being super scared of certain films. I was exposed to way too early um, I think I, I got really cynical about that stuff. I, my wife is uh, a little bit psychic, so she says, and she's got, she's more in touch. I mean, she wrote from a hotel in Arkansas that was haunted, and um, she's, she's, she's that side of the equation for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never really. I've never encountered anything before, really. But, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's got to be something out there. It can't just, the stories had to have started somewhere, you know. Oh, yeah. Listen, I think, uh, I think the energy that connects all of us is, is very real and very strong. Um, and, and you sort of have to have your eyes open and your conscious aware. Um, and it's there. I don't know what kind of tangible form it takes. I just know we're all we're all bonded closer than we think. Like, just if I yawn and someone else yawns, it's it's kind of inexplicable. But something passes between you. Right. I just I just don't know. Um, we tend to put we tend to put mythology and narrative on the the unex, unexplained. So I, I don't, I just, I don't know where that energy, which I, that I very much believe is there, uh, sort of ends and physical manifestations of, of, of things in our culture begin. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I totally agree. There's definitely just too many weird things that occur. That's just, there's no other explanation for them. That's, between that's very true. Yeah. Hey, do you ever have you ever read any of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials? I have not. His uh it's just so amazing and incredible. He, it's it's like everything everything that Tolkien had, but he adds religion and philosophy to it. Mm -hmm. Uh so it's on a it's on a more sophisticated level in a way. But um you just rip a little second book is called the subtle, the subtle knife and if you have a subtle knife you can tear the fabric of one dimension and go into another and it's and they're just layered on top of each other so that that other dimension is so close it's it's just it's right in front of us i mean it's something that that interstellar covers it's something that twilight zone and stephen king have tread upon but the, the notion that there's something something else much different and much stronger right just in front of us is so fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. I'm going to check those out. Yeah. His dark materials. Okay. It's very, very interesting stuff. All right. I'm going to check them out for sure. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's talk Leslie Vernon. I, uh, sure. 11, uh, 11 years. Like it's I'm, been, I'm constantly <laughs> disappointing. Just constantly disappointing everybody. But, um, You've given sure. us a gift. It's a gift. That's that's how you should look at it. It's... Well, it's definitely not a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, but it's it's something I hope to. I, I'm you know it's just I'm so feel so gratified on the one hand that 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 the film resonated with you know, whatever the seven people it resonated with, but that's still, I'm still very <laughs> gratified that it, that it, that it found an audience. And, uh, and I, and I hope, 
I hope that it stands the test of time, um, that it holds up, um, and that and that we're able to to keep going with it. There's there's more to say. There's an entire um, decade of the of the new century worth of of horror tropes and conventions that um, that I'm anxious to to comment about, as it were. Right. So, so one day maybe maybe we'll get our shot to do it again. I know there was uh, it was maybe two years ago or so there was a Kickstarter that started on it for another one. And yeah, that's right. Well, the the fact of the matter is, um, we got down to developing a a a sequel prequel. We call it a spree make because it's a sequel prequel remake. Mm-hmm. It's like a deconstruction of of every which way that horror films go. And um, David Stevie, the original writer behind the mask, wrote a, a just an amazing script that we developed. And um, I just I'm so proud of it. And now today, it's already five, six, seven years old, that script. So in a way, the script itself is, is, is captures that mid-aught period, um, right after, in the midst of the torture porn and film footage genres, and it had a lot of interesting things to say. Today, uh, that script and, and that film, um, it's just very interesting. It's almost like a period piece because I don't I don't necessarily want to bring it up to current day and yet um, certain things may feel a little bit old or period depending on how you look at it but I think we captured uh, the essence of what of what was happening several years ago and if if we do get the opportunity to make the film again I'm not sure I'd want to I'd want to make the screenplay any more current. So it's a little bit of a, of a conundrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, there's a great line. Well, I'm obviously biased. I think all the lines are great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a line in the movie where they're dealing with the, with the don't ask, don't tell policy, or they're dealing with like, okay, well, if, if pot, if, if, if pot is being legalized, then if you're smoking pot, are you, are you no longer innocent? Are you fair game? Like, like these, but these are sort of Clinton era, um, jokes and tropes because, because don't ask, don't tell was a major league issue around 2007. Mm. You know, it's really, it's sort of old hat now. So the question is, will the film serve as a period piece, um, as a snapshot of where we were, uh, and, and we have ways of explaining that away. So, for instance, that that footage was shot at the time and then embargoed, and it's only coming out now, but it's a film that was made, uh, or it's footage that was discovered from 2007. I mean, so we don't necessarily, we can write that into the narrative of, of why the film itself might feel somewhat dated. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. There was, um, or we go and literally do a, a whole rewrite, bring it up to modern day with a whole new pass. Yeah, I think either way you would go. I mean, from just like the, I mean, you know, it, this is from a fan's point of view. It's just we just want another movie, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> like just, we need another movie. Uh, that's right. I mean, Fair uh, enough. I don't, yeah, far from me to over, <laughs> overthink it, which which I've been doing for about ten years. You know, it's it's so interesting how horror as a as a genre isn't necessarily given. I mean, maybe sometimes for good reason, because it's on the one hand, it's the closest thing that Hollywood has to an assembly line. I mean, you just bust these things out. It doesn't take a lot of um, a list talent. They're contained. They're low budget for a reason, but at the same time, um, and so you do get a lot of schlock, but you also get great films that reflect the social consciousness. And, uh, and even the, even the more mediocre films when taken in the aggregate, when you look at 
all of the creature features of the 50s. You think of the 50s as creature features, and very few of them were, were excellent, but, but taken in the ag aggregate, they reflected a zeitgeist that was fearful of nuclear proliferation. And what would happen when, you know, radioactive material turns things into the blob? And so you can really take a temperature read of the country or the world and what was happening at the time. And what I find so interesting about what was happening when uh, Eli... You there? Oh, it was you? Uh, I could barely hear you there. Oh, where did I lose you? Uh, Eli Roth. So when I, Eli Roth was pontificating, either consciously or not, about the, the zeitgeist, about what was happening through through cabin fever and whatnot, um, and in uh, hostel, um, or or saw even more poignantly, it's like if you're post 9-11 and you're watching people on CNN in a room that you can't access and you don't know where it is and you're totally helpless and it's super dark and you're seeing beheadings on the internet, you know, the horror movie, which is supposed to be entertaining, but it also has to keep up with what's happening on the 24-7 news feed and, and the deepest, darkest fears that we have as a, as a culture. I mean, that's why Saw is so reflective of um, of the Iraq war and, and just what was happening in the world and why torture porn as a genre wasn't by accident, even if it was in people's filmmakers' subconsciousness. Hmm. So why that way? So with, with Behind the Mask and with this with this, this next iteration. My point is there's so much more to, to break down. There, there are new conventions of horror, really the conventions of horror that we addressed in, in the first one in behind the mask dealt with the Reagan era of 1980s conservative values. And, um, I mean, it really started 1980 with the shining and how, Shelley Duvall, I mean, she takes Jack Nicholson's, Jack Torrance's manhood with the baseball bat and, and throws Jack Nicholson into the food pantry, which is the womb, which is the cupboard and the, the yonic imagery contrasted to the phallic imagery of all the knives in the, in the, in the kitchen outside of the womb. Um, she arrests his manhood, I mean, all of these conventions are just laid out in these movies. And that's what we were trying to deconstruct. And, and there's just so much more material. So that's why I'm excited to hopefully have the opportunity to, to do another one. Right. It is definitely a lot harder, I would say, to scare people in a horror movie these days, as opposed to how it used to be, especially like, you know, in the eighties and the nineties. And for sure. I mean, one thing we always, we bring up a lot on this podcast is I just, is there's just not a lot of good horror movies anymore. And there's not just that, but there's no, like when I was a kid, there was, you know, like horror icons in movies like, you know, Freddie and Jason and Michael Myers and Leatherface and they're everywhere. And now today it's like, there's just none. There's nobody that I can really think of in the past, you know, 10 years maybe, even that's come along, that's kind of, you know, came along in a horror movie and has kind of been that staple of kids today that they're like, oh, that's our horror movie guy. You almost think of Jigsaw as being the last yeah. iconic mythic horror character. I was, uh, I was visiting with a, an executive not too long ago from Dimension. Actually, it was over the summer. This was the week that Don't Breathe came out, which was, you know, this runaway, improbable, not improbable, but just unexpected mm. success for late summer for a horror film. And um, 
and he was telling me how difficult. Just imagine how hard it is to conceive of of new original IP, intellectual property. Um, just the, the mask and the costume and the name and the outfit and the backstory and and then the music that comes along with it. It's it's lightning in a bottle. It's it's very tough to just to just manufacture that. And so. Mm. So when that IP comes along, um, you know, that might take six months for someone to do. So when you have something like Don't Breathe that becomes really successful, you know, you, you do your best to, uh, to make sure that you recycle that, yeah. that character if you can. Right. Don't Breathe kind of, uh, I went and saw Don't Breathe in the theater and I need to rewatch it. Because what I had heard was like the end, like the ending's crazy, and you won't believe the ending. And I'm like, okay, I'm on board. And then uh, I was trying to avoid any commercials for it, and one came along, and it was just flashing quick things, you know. And I could have swore I saw the man, like the blind man in the movie, uh, turn into a werewolf in the commercial. <laughs> and so. When I go into the movie, I'm th- I'm expecting this to happen at some point in the movie. And I'm like, and the movie's getting ready to end. I'm like, well, no, he hasn't turned into a werewolf yet. I'm like, and the way this whole movie's gone, at the end, if he turns into a werewolf, that's going to be really crazy. And then the movie ended, and I'm like, well, there was no werewolf. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know where I got it from so that commercial. Are, but So yeah. does that exist? It doesn't. It just... I think it was just. Oh, it doesn't. It was in those quick flashes during the commercial, and I was half paying attention. I think it just caught a glimpse of like the way it was framed and the lighting and everything in the commercial, and he was like screaming and like it. I guess to me, it just like, oh, he's turning into a werewolf in this commercial. I guess why. And then I got mad. I was like, why would they show that in a commercial? They just gave the whole movie away, and yeah, there was no werewolf. I was kind of disappointed, but yeah. That's really <laughs> that's really clever, though. If you think about it, I mean, that's a great way to throw the audience to throw a fake spoiler. We actually had something similar. We spent all this money and time. I mean, the most expensive scene we shot in the movie, I, I, I cut out of behind the mask. And, uh, but, but it was when Robert England was prominently featured in the film. And so we had this, this great close up Robert England dramatic moment. It's a trailer moment. I, I had to put it in the trailer you know, knowing full well that that scene wasn't in the movie and I had left it out. Mm. Um, so, so it's one of those, when you're on a super low budget, you paid a lot for, uh, for Robert England. You, you don't want to leave him entirely on the floor if you can help sell your movie. Right. So what's happened though, as a result of that is people have asked, you know, where is that scene and what, what is, what's up with that scene? And I'm just so, embarrassed by how bad I think the scene came out. It just doesn't doesn't need to be in the movie. But I will say, so one of the interesting things we're doing this year, this is the 10th anniversary of the theatrical release of Behind the Mask, and we're kind of kicking off those festivities with a, a re-screening of the 35mm print at South By this year. Mm. They were nice enough to have us back. That's where we premiered actually in 06. Yeah. And um, but but we're gonna we're gonna release a 10th anniversary edition of the movie and um, and uh, and put some new special features, uh, more of which I'll be announcing at South by and um, and I'm debating whether or not to put that that courtroom scene. It's the scene in the courtroom at the very end. It's like an epilogue, and I'm debating whether to put it on the special features or not. Would it be like uh, an after credits thing? No, it would. It wouldn't be tacked onto the film. It would. It would be a special feature, okay. like a bonus feature on the on the DVD Blu-ray that we release. Um, so it's just one of the few things I never recorded a director's commentary, and uh, kind of at this point, I think it'd be really nice to sit down and and just reflect on the film and and go through it. So. Um, Adam Green 
who's got his own podcast. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about doing a, a – I haven't done his podcast before, and we were talking about getting on his podcast and watching down the movie and doing a director's commentary together because his film Hatchet was on the festival circuit with my film, and a lot of festival programmers programmed a double feature where you watch Behind the Mask – and then right after, you'd watch Hatchet <laughs> because it sort of worked as a nice companion piece. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to probably do that. And then I'd put, I'd put that podcast that director's commentary onto, the, onto the, the 10th anniversary edition as well. So there's a few other, other things that I'm thinking about doing that I think the, the fans would really, really enjoy. Um, so it's going to be a fun year and then hopefully the year culminates with, with getting, uh, the right people interested to go and and shoot the script finally. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, what was it? Uh, I mean, you go back way back when you were a kid with horror movies and, uh, kind of growing up with them. What was it like whenever you were shooting and you were like, you brought in like Robert England or, you know, like, uh, you know, like Zelda <laughs> Rubenstein or, you know, like Kane Hodder. And you just had like all these guys coming in. It was incredible. I mean, it was, it was, um, he was like a Vince Lombardi when he, when he would, when he showed up, he's an encyclopedia of, 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 knowledge on the, the industry, the, the actors, the, all the character actors that have graced all the films. He knows, he knows them all. And he knows, uh, what, what stages they were on and what, what public theater they've done. And, um, and he's, and he's so professional. And, and when these guys show up and you're doing your first film and you've got no budget and all of a sudden Robert England shows up, the union, the crews, everybody steps up. They realize, wait, this is, he's adding credibility to this. I mean, this isn't <laughs> just another no budget film I'm working on. This is, if he decided to do it, you know, that must be pretty good. So, um, it, it helps. It's really inspiring to have, to have those cameos, even if they're just cameos right. for me. Um, I just, I knew that uh, I knew I was on to something when we were writing it. And, uh, and even though I hadn't directed a film before, it's very, very important to just totally believe in your story and, and have a very crystal clear vision for it and be super confident about the story you're telling. Um, but then to know that the horror icons kind of saw what you saw and they were coming reinforced my own confidence. Mm. So that was another reason why. And, and I also knew that getting those elements attached like Zelda, those were just more Easter eggs that was going to further uh, gift wrap this love note to the horror community. And I mean, it was like we were everything from the psycho killer song to the attention to detail on the mask to the, all the Easter eggs we put in, um, you know, without some of those cameos, it, it was just going to be like lip singing, but putting the cameos in, you know, it's the real deal. And so it just made us all on set feel so good to have him there. Has anybody ever tried to find every Easter egg in that movie and, do you know if anybody's actually found them all? Like, is there one that I know? Like in the James Gunn always says in Guardians of the Galaxy, there's an Easter egg in there, and nobody's been able to find it yet. Is there anything in like behind the mask that you guys put in there and you haven't heard anybody mention before yet? Like, I know the one that stuck out for me was um, the house that Kane Hodder comes out of is the house from right. Halloween. I'm like, that's the house from Halloween. I got that one. Well, no, actually, actually. The house that Kane Hodder comes out of is the house from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But the house that, uh, in the very beginning, um, t- 
Taylor is going through her Diane Sawyer uh, docu clip, and she and she talks about Haddonfield, and we we zoom in on a on a house in Haddonfield, and it's the it's actually it is the house from Halloween. Okay. So you're correct. The house from Halloween is in the movie as well. I knew it was in there somewhere. Um, we have uh, most of the Easter eggs have been found. Um, the Rabbit in Red Lounge, I thought was a really good one. Um, that's that's a matchbook um, that, that we actually did the, the sign of the of the brothel, as it were. Mm. But um, there was just an Easter egg uh, discovered a, a couple of months ago. Believe it or not. Um, and I, I'm so bummed out. I forget who it was, but um, he suggested that Eugene was the killer in Black Christmas, mm-hmm. and he's he is correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, although Eugene took a lot of jobs on, so an Easter egg that nobody had discovered, um, I revealed maybe a month or two a month ago on yeah. Twitter, which. Um, which still no one really has, has, has identified, but I took a screenshot. I mean, it's so obscure, but in the back of Eugene's car, there is a, uh, there is a hint. There is an item in the back of Eugene's car, which is parked in his, at his house. And the item in the back of his car gives away one of the, one of the roles he played in the seventies. Um, that one, no one's, no one's seen yet. Um, there's, there, there are so many just super duper obscure ones, like ones I never expected anyone to get. I mean, the color yellow in the shining symbolizes Indian sacrifice because they're over a burial ground and therefore Basically, when the color yellow shows up, when someone's wearing yellow, you know they're about to get it mm-hmm. uh, in Shining, if you go back and watch. Uh, so I, I, I dress Zelda in a yellow sweater. I mean, these are things that are so obscure, I would never expect anybody to get. But I still nevertheless wanted to be so deliberate about everything I did um, that uh, just even if people didn't get all of them, they could tell it was coming from a place of deep thought and consideration and love. Right. Yeah, I think I need to go back and rewatch a few of these horror movies. It's been it's been a while since I've watched a lot of them, and um, yeah, the one thing that really stuck out to me when I first when I first watched Behind the Mask was it shared the same universe as all the other ones, and it was like I mean, like today, you know, with Marvel, that's you know, a huge thing, but it was like, I was always wanting those crossovers. Like, you know, we got Freddie versus Jason, but you know, we never really got anything else. And with behind the mask, you know, you guys did it. Did you ever run into like any issues or problems with like trying to connect them? And like, did you ever like try to do more with the movie than you wanted to, to maybe introduce any, you know, like anybody besides Eugene in there? You know, when we when we set out to do this, there weren't there weren't any self aware movies. Uh, I mean, scratch that. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Airplane. <laughs> I mean, there's pl- plenty of self aware movies, but I mean, we had we had a blank canvas. I think we had a lot of rope to do a lot of stuff. This was before The Office, so the whole kind of mockumentary style hadn't really it wasn't trite yet. Um, and, uh, certainly reality TV and film footage were happening, but the handheld DV, it wasn't even HD. It was DV cam really hadn't been exploited yet. And really there hadn't been any horror comedies. I mean, outside of trimmers and, um, American werewolf in London, uh, there, we really couldn't put our finger on any horror comedy. Mm. And then of course the year we came out, uh, Slither came out, and um, you know that was I consider that definitely a horror comedy. Yeah. Snakes on a Plane, um, and uh, and so 
you know, we wanted to be careful not to step on intellectual property. So we called guys like Jason and Freddie. We didn't call them Freddie Krueger or Jason Voorhees. And we just, we really tread lightly on that. Um, and then we were just really suggestive. But it wasn't as though we were licensing a trademark. So we were going to show Freddie's claws. I mean, I think I threw in the, um, the Hellraiser uh, box and, um, you know, I haven't been sued yet, but that's, that's something you really got to be careful about. Right. Um, and, and then to get the actor to just come out of the house, like Kane Hodder, um, you know, that's perfectly fine. So we had to make sure that legally everything got cleared. Um, but what was, what's really cool is, oh, and of course, Shaun of the Dead. Um, came out sort of after we wrapped, but before we came out in theaters. Um, and then, uh, I'll never forget probably one of the, one of the bigger mistakes I made was passing on Zombieland, which was a script I got right after kind of behind the mask. And I first got represented, um, that script came my way and, and, uh, and I read it and I loved it, but I thought, you know, page one is step one, how to get away from zombies, run as fast as you can. Um, step two, and it's felt like they'd, they'd seen behind the mask and kind of applied that to zombies. And right. I, I didn't, and I was thinking, I was so overthinking it. I was thinking I'll get pigeonholed and I don't want to go. And by the way, Shaun of the Dead just happened and I don't want to tread on that material and um, zombies that's going away. That's, that's just had its day. And of course, you know, years later with walking dead, it never died. Um, but, uh, but then with zombie land and traffic thunder and then cabin in the woods. I mean, on the one hand, I don't think anyone really has seen behind the mask, but then on the other hand, it can't just be coincidence that all of these self referential meta films that ultimately culminated in, you know, Deadpool, um, just, just happened, uh, right. Just incrementally after behind the mask. So if, if behind the mask influenced writers or colleagues, um, that, that'd be very gratifying to know that that's, it's really humbling to think about. I would say so. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it's, I mean, it's an 11, it's 11 years old. And I mean, people still talk about it, you know, today. And I mean, the very, the funny thing is the very first episode of our podcast, uh, while we were recording the episode, we were kind of hitting like Facebook and Twitter just to see, you know, what was going on. And the, uh, behind the mask Facebook account posted the, uh, I forgot exactly what the post was, but it was basically like, and I think it's time to dust this off. Like that was that was the only that was the only thing that was posted on there, and then it, we I, I lost my mind on the podcast. I'm like, oh my god, we got breaking news. We got to talk about this, and then the next day I'm just reading on like every horror site after horror site, like okay, this might actually be happening again, and it's like, yeah, there's definitely the audience is still there and wanting it, and it's like I wouldn't be surprised if it's like we're 11 years later and we might start hearing of filmmakers today that my, you know, reference, like, yeah, you know, when I was younger and I watched Behind the Mask and that kind of put me on the path, you know, where I'm at today kind of thing. That's really, really incredible to think. I mean, who knows? I, I, uh, I gotta say, (laughs) when I, I, I work with a a person, a, a colleague who does the social media for me because I'm ter- I'm not even on Facebook and I'm terrible and all of that stuff. <laughs> it's, um, but I was explaining to her, you know, this isn't public yet, but we're going to South by it's the 10th anniversary. I got all the rights to the film back from Maker Bay stars. And I'm really excited to release a special 10th anniversary edition of the film. And um, it's going to be bonus features and maybe, maybe, thinking about a comic book and all sorts of stuff. And so I really wanted to start up the social media account again, because it's going to be relevant once again. So 
so so she comes out with this this post yeah and you know obviously most people said well that means they're gonna go make the sequel when i really meant look we're gonna we're gonna do a lot of things that'll (laughs) hopefully put us in position to go make a sequel but talk about you know setting the wrong expectations at the wrong time so um but it was great i mean it's the one thing that post did signify is how much love there still is and how uh, how newsworthy it is if, if this is, is to really happen. It seems as though we're really going to have the support of the blogosphere, which is going to be incredibly important toward uh, le- legitimizing what we're doing and rehashing the efforts. Hmm. Um, I'll never forget at the time that we launched the Kickstarter campaign. You know, that was right around the time every single filmmaker was hitting up every single blogger to say support my Kickstarter. And of course, if Ain't It Cool News went out and just featured every single Kickstarter project, it, it would just become a shill for features. So they had to be either very judicious or just just as a policy not support any Kickstarter project. Um, and so it was really it was really humbling when most of them turned out in support of our Kickstarter. And I think it was because we, we had established credibility by having done the first film. And um, so that sort of cut us above the rest, I guess. So I'm, I feel good about, um, about really getting this launched again and maybe making another run at it. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's just to me, at least there's not, very many horror movies that come out anymore that are really great that, you know, you rush out and you tell all your friends about, you get maybe one or two a year. I mean, that's coming from me, at least that's how it is. And, uh, it's mainly because my favorite genre of horror was always the slasher movie. Cause that's, you know, I was a kid of the eighties and that's what they all were. And they were amazing. And it's, you know, especially, you know, after, you know, 2000 and up, there wasn't a whole lot of them. And with Behind the Mask, it wasn't just like, it wasn't just a slasher movie. It was like, oh my God, it's a slasher movie, but this, the slasher, he's so lovable. And I kind of want to, I kind of root yeah. for this guy and I want to see him succeed and do well. And it's like every other slasher movie, it's like, oh yeah, they're, you know, Jason's awesome, but you know, oh, he's so violent. And then with Leslie <laughs> Vernon, it's like, I loved him and. I hope he does a good job at killing all these kids at this party. <laughs> I think it's like, right. it's whatever. It's like, you know, I think Twisted it's, that way. yeah, yeah. It's like if, you know, whenever there's like a, any kind of thing that comes from those social media accounts, it's like, okay, can this, is this going to be the announcement that, you know, Leslie Vernon's coming back and, you know, we can get another amazing slasher movie whenever it's just, it's dry. I mean, I can't, I mean, then low budget wise and indie wise, you know, I'm sure there's a ton, but you know, when it comes to like you know something major, there really hasn't been one in a while. I can't even think of the last one. Well, I I'll say this: a lot has changed in uh, in the ten years. I mean, the emergence of Netflix and Amazon. Um, there, probably ten years ago, there may have been six six buyers among the network and cable providers who were looking for material. There are now 52 buyers of material. Nat Geo now is looking for, you know, narrative content. So, so there's never been, um, more need for content. Um, and, and it's a great time to be a writer or an actor. Even there's just plenty of tons of acting jobs, writing jobs, um, and, uh, and for something like Behind the Mask, the sequel, you know, the home for that could easily be a place like Netflix, where you do have a hardcore tribal audience, and you've got a budget to be able to serve that audience. And, you know, David and I always harbored dreams of having these small little indie mockumentaries, but actually doing some Leslie Vernon films, like some straight up Leslie Vernon films. And if you ever wanted to see the origin story, you know, you could 
whip out behind the mask and it's sequel, but but then you've got this standalone Leslie Vernon slasher film franchise. You know, that was kind of the the concept. And uh, and I think there's still a, po- a great possibility for that. I was actually in MTV's offices in 2009-10 um, pitching a whole 21 Jump Street school for Survivor Girls television show. And... Uh, and this was this was before um, Final Girls and Scream Queens and all of that. But um, but but you know, if it's interesting, had I been pitching that to a Netflix, um, I think I think uh, it just it may have gotten more traction. And so this year, uh, the, the the Blumhouses of the world and the Netflix of the world, they they do offer very interesting prospects to get something which is already proven intellectual property and a proven fan base. It's hard to quantify the fan base, but it is definitely a hardcore fan base. It, it might be somewhat easier to get a project set up. I, I will say though, it's very, very challenging. In fact, to quantify the fan base. I've had long discussions about this with Tim League of the Alamo um, theater franchise and mm-hmm. um, Quint over at 80 Cold News. And, you know, the question is, if you, is the, is the hardcore horror community the sum of the people who go to Fangoria and Bloody Disgusting and Horror Hounds and Remorg, or is it all redundant? Is it the same people they visit all the sites and listen to all the podcasts? So how, at the end of the day, do you quantify just how big the fan base is? It's, it's, it's almost, this is a terrible analogy, but it's almost like soccer in America. You know that soccer in America isn't very popular still, mm. but among the people who love it, they're fanatical about it. Like it's, they are hardcore, but it's still a very tribal thing. Yeah, and the one thing, too, is, uh, you know, like with something like Behind the Mask or other little movies that, you know, kind of flew under the radar for a while is, you know, with me especially is, you know, anytime anybody's looking for a horror movie to watch, you know, it's, there's two, and I always tell them, Behind the Mask and Sleepaway Camp. Those are the two you need to watch. <laughs> and, and it's like, and I never, I never fail in it too. They always come back and like, that's an amazing movie. They're both amazing. And wow. Thanks for that ending to sleepaway camp. Give me a heads up next time. I'm like, you're welcome. And, uh, the other thing too, is like, especially with the older movies with like, uh, you know, they were just, um, they're getting ready to start filming a new Friday the 13th movie. And then they just completely canceled it. And they're, you know, starting to get another Halloween movie put together. And the thing is with those, it's like everybody, especially me, it's like I loved those as a kid, but now I'm an adult and I have my own kids and I try to, you know, everything I'm kind of into, I want to share with them. And I mean, he's eight years old right now, my oldest kid, but I have, you know, Friday the 13th stuff up all over my living room and he (laughs) he really wants to watch it. And I'm like, well, no, not yet. Uh, maybe, maybe eventually he's seen, you know, like I let, I, let him, I let him watch Tremors and like Army of Darkness and things like that. But it's like we're, we're kind of in a in an area now where it's like, you know, people have, you know, new friends that are, you know, just getting into things or they have kids and all these old properties. It's kind of like if you can do them right, you know, you can dust them off and make them brand new again. And, you know, show them to a new, like, you know, kids are going to, you know, not kids, but, you know, teenagers today, you know, who knows what they think about Friday the 13th or Halloween or, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. But, you know, if you... I know, I agree. Like that first Friday the 13th, it's pretty tame, it's pretty tame. And, uh, you know, sort of the Halloween, it's, it's more about, I mean, horror is so much about the anticipation it's like going to the dentist's office and it's, you know, it ultimately doesn't hurt, but 
that drill and the sound and getting close to the nerve and you're just, it's all the anticipatory moments. That's what made the lingering camera, John Carpenter's lingering um, omniscient manipulative camera made it so scary. But now there's more like two kinds of horror where it's the, it's the, it's the gore hmm. and the, the gore is one kind of horror, but then there's the scary and the scary is a, another type of horror. So, you know, what's so interesting is how horror films break down on genre on uh, gender lines. I mean, the majority of people actually who go to theaters to see horror today are women under the age of 25. Mm-hmm. And now they're bringing dates, but they're usually going in groups. They love to be scared. Women don't necessarily want to be grossed out. They want to be scared. And of course, this is, I'm painting a very broad brush here, but you know, guys, guys always love the money shots. And so, um, whether that's in porn or in horror. And so they, that's, uh, it's, it's where the, the, the violence and the gore gives way to the fantasy and the scariness. Um, so that's why things like Final Destination and Scream were so huge uh, as commercial movies, paranormal, um, you know, Blair Witch. Those were all really, really scary, not necessarily violent. Uh, the violent films, they're, they're, um, they don't tend to do as well, uh, and, they're, and they're rediscovered for sure online and on home video. Yeah. And especially home video, it's like um, with Netflix, it seems like they're just throwing money at everybody right now to make something. Like I I turn on Netflix almost every day and there's maybe 10 to 15 new things on there that are all like have the Netflix branding on it. And it's like, it's like I can't even keep up with watching everything that Netflix is putting out. And with Amazon yeah. too, it's like... The cool, the kind of thing I kind of like with Amazon, what they're doing with like their TV shows, especially, is like they'll just do one episode, and then they leave it up to the people that watched it. And if like enough people like you know vote for it, then they'll make a whole series, like they did with the uh, the new Tick reboot that they're doing. They just made the pilot, and then they kind of left it on there, and you know they waited to see what everybody said about it, and you know now they're moving forward, and it's like well, yeah. And by the way, that's I mean good for Amazon because they can they can be so driven by consumer data mm. in a way that you know, think about it. The biggest studio Warner brothers ha- does not have a relationship with its consumers because they're not the ones selling tickets. Regal and AMC and movie tickets and Fandango are selling tickets. Yeah. So, so Warner brothers comes out with Batman and, uh, and then when they want to come out with the second Batman, they can't just email or even post to their community because they have no community because they have no customers. Hmm. What, um, what are some of the horror movies lately, like in the past year that you've seen that you've kind of liked? Oh, uh, I think I just, I think I just, did, did I lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, I, what was your question? I asked uh, what uh, horror movies in maybe like the past year that you've seen that you kind of liked. Well, I, I I do think that Don't Breathe. I I thought that that was um, that was impressive. I I really felt entertained by that film, and and I thought it was it was smart. Um, you know, going back several years, uh, people got really excited over innkeepers and um well I, I guess i shouldn't name a lot of names but there's there have been a lot of movies that i think people got overly excited about that i was not super impressed by mm-hmm. um and i and i think it's i think the bar may have lowered somewhat and and, and people were desperate for anything that was kind of like even average got elevated to something that was really good um I mean, Cabin in the Woods, man, I just loved that. Again, I feel like I'm going back a few years, but um, I just thought, man, that's the commercial version of Behind the Mask. That's that's uh, 
that was so terrific and it just got um i i you know i'm i i'm a i'm a critic when it comes to horror and i think a lot i'm a lot more forgiving when it comes to other genres but um i don't i don't see i don't feel as though i see great horror often i think it's rare yeah that i uh i see a really good horror film and uh i mean there's been like a past couple of years where you know like the top horror movie of the year will be out and really like the past the two that I can think of off the top of my mind that are the best examples is um It Follows and Final Girls. And yeah. you know they were like at the top of everybody's list and everything like that and I watched them and I'm like, "Well, they're all right. They weren't <laughs> they weren't great, but I mean like you know it's just you know, I'm a product of, you know, 80s horror where it was just whenever you went to the movies, it was like, holy shit, I just went to the movies tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm with you. I'm with you. I, um, you know, It Follows is a is a film that I, I tried getting into a couple times and and I know how much people liked it. And, and I just I, I didn't. uh didn't, it didn't grab me. Yeah. The, the, the main thing with It Follows with me was it was like, with any movie really, it's like if I'm one step ahead of the, you know, like the writer and the filmmaker, then it's, you know, I'm immediately drawn out. And I mean, like with It Follows, whenever, you, you know, you finally figure out exactly what the problem is, it's like, we'll go sleep with a prostitute and then you're going to be fine. And, you know, eventually later on in the movie, you know, spoiler alert, that's what happens. It's like, all right, well, told you. <laughs> yeah, I, done to begin with, man. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, you can you can break that movie and, and a lot like it down in terms of um, you know plot structure and where the kills are and character development. Is there some sort of prop or device that gets introduced that resolves itself eventually? And um, or you can break it down on a technical basis. How was the production value, and did it look bigger than its budget? And um, and and definitely, any I can find good things from any film. Something someone did that that was really great. But um, when I look at a film and it's in its aggregate, the whole thing put together, um, I just haven't been super impressed recently by much by much in in the horror genre i should Mm. say in the horror genre and i think you know i think we're about to we should if history is any indication we should we should be seeing some great ones because i think tough times tough political cultural times yeah actually yield great horror because it's it's like real authentic i've got something to say even if i don't even know it um I'm I'm writing something that evokes the zeitgeist I'm in, and I think you'll see a whole sort of grouping of films that are going to deal with whatever, however people are interpreting this time we're in. I mean, the first what's the first fake news horror film going to be like, or you know, it's like, but but that's everything has to be represented, everything has to reflect. Uh, put a mirror on ourselves and be the scariest version of it. And that's sort of when horror thrives. Right. Maybe, and, that's, uh, uh, maybe that's something that, you know, like a character like Leslie Vernon can do. They just, you know, create fake. That's all Leslie Vernon does is create fake news. That's what he created <laughs> yeah. uh, when he planted a microfiche article yeah. back in the day. Um, so I, I have, to run i am now home after a three-hour drive and a two-hour lecture i'm glad we got you through this blizzard no yeah this was a great (laughs) way to to spend the time i really really appreciate you having me on oh man thank you for being on and jumping on with it just just keeping the keeping the him alive is uh it means a lot and if if and when i've got more news to share um let's i'd love to follow up and tell you what's going on keep you abreast of our progress all right sounds good man
Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, man. And, I'll talk uh, to you later. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, Take thanks. Care. All right. Bye. Bye.